Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Thanks for joining. My name is Brad Johnson, and I'm the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel. In each episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast, it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. In this episode, I have the opportunity to interview number one and multiple New York Times bestselling author, Tucker Max. For those of you unfamiliar with Tucker, he's on a short list of people that include both Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis, who have had three books on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list at the same time. He also recently started a company based on a challenge from an entrepreneurial friend that is revolutionizing how to turn ideas into books. He calls it Book in a Box. Before I get to what we cover, Make sure you stick around until the very end of my intro here as I'm still blown away by the offer Tucker put together for all the Elite Advisor Blueprint listeners. So this conversation just flowed as Tucker and I covered a lot of ground and I had a blast picking the brain of a master book promoter, marketer, and strategist. But we also ventured into deeper territory as well. We talked about how Tucker met his wife and the lesson financial advisors can take from it for attracting their ideal clients. We talked about the story of an entrepreneurial challenge for Tucker to solve a problem and how it led to the creation of Book in a Box. We talked about how one financial advisor tripled his business by writing a book specifically for his high net worth client niche and his brilliantly simple marketing strategy on how to use the book to drive appointments. We talked about the secret of selling yourself in a book without turning people off by selling. Tricky, I know. We talked about how some of the most famous historical figures in the world have written a book without even picking up a pen and what you can learn from it. We talked about why marketing and promoting your book starts before you even write it. We talked about how Tucker firing himself as the CEO of Book in a Box was one of the best decisions he's ever made for his business and why. Along the way, we have a few side conversations you don't want to miss, including the best business advice Tucker's ever received, the best book Tucker's ever read, and Tucker's morning routine, and a ton more. So I'm not going to delay this any longer. I want to get to this conversation. However, for those of you who decide you want to run with writing your own book after giving this conversation a listen... Tucker's put together maybe the most generous offer we've seen to date for Blueprint listeners. This guy does know how to market after all. So first, he's offering his book, The Book in a Box Method, as a free download for all the Blueprint listeners. It outlines in detail their book writing process. The download can be found at the top of the show notes at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash Tucker. Second, he's knocking $1,000 off the price to work with Book in a Box and donating an additional $1,000 towards my team's annual March Madness charity event. We run it every March in conjunction with March Madness. We've given to Make-A-Wish in the past. This year, we're going to support the Front Row Foundation run by my buddy, John Vroman. So incredibly generous offer, $1,000 off your cost to work with Book in a Box, another $1,000 towards supporting an awesome cause. Lastly, all Blueprint listeners who sign up to write a book with Tucker and the crew at Book in a Box get their first 100 copies of their newly published book on the house as a thank you. So guys, this was all Tucker. Special thanks to him for being so generous. Once again, you can find the free book download and details on the $1,000 savings in the show notes at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash Tucker. That's T-U-C-K-E-R. Links to books, people mentioned, everything else we cover can be found as always in the show notes as well. And without further delay, thank you for listening and my conversation with Tucker Max. Welcome to the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast. I'm super excited today. I've got the one and only Tucker Max on here with us. Welcome, Tucker. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to dig in. I've got a laundry list of questions here. And you're a guy that I just love to interview for days, but we'll just dig in. So I was listening to my buddy, John Broman's podcast, and you shared a story. I don't know if you even remember this, but you shared a story on how you actually met your wife. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really cool because you were super intentional about it. I think you even wrote out a couple yeah. of rules as far as here's what I'm looking for. So if you don't mind just sharing, as you were going to meet your wife, I just thought it was cool how you said, I've got to hang out in different circles if I want to meet this type of person. Can you share that with the listeners and just the methodology? Because I think there's something everyone can take from that. Right. So I actually wrote a whole book about this, not just that, but it's essentially like a modern man's guide to sex and dating and that sort of stuff. 
And uh, what I talk about in the book, uh, what I did with my wife is that like, when you're going out looking for something, and it really applies to everything in life, but most people never apply this idea to dating or relationships. If you're looking for something short term, that's totally fine. Then you need to go find women who are looking for something short term and then uh, back with them. But long term, that's also great. Then you need to find women who are also looking for the same thing and then interact with them. And so the problem is a lot of guys conflate the two. They think, oh, a bar is where I meet women. And it's like, it's a place where you meet a certain type of woman at a certain stage in our life looking for a certain type of thing, which is generally very different than a woman looking for something longer term. So what I did was I just kind of understood what am I, not just what am I looking for in a woman? Like I came up with a very specific, there are basically three specific must-haves and the three nice-to-have traits. And then I thought to myself, okay, where are these women? The women that I am looking for specifically, what activities does she do? What social groups is she in? Where is she spending her time? And I came up with a list of about, I don't know, I think it was something like 50 different things that this potential woman would be into. And most of those things are stuff I just don't care about. I'm never going to go do. But there were like five or 10 things that I also really liked. And I could spend time doing, but I wasn't doing. And so it was like, oh, well, obviously I'm not meeting this woman because I'm not doing the things that I even like that could spend time around here. A great example is working out. I work out. Like I don't need to go to a class to work out. I don't need CrossFit. I don't need any of those things. I know exactly how to do a squat and a deadlift and a power clean. And I do those on my own, right? Because it just fits my schedule better. But the type of woman I was looking for, there was a high likelihood that she would be into CrossFit, right? And so I could just work out in a group, you know, with cool people at CrossFit. And so, and I wasn't. So I thought, all right, I'm going to go do that. And there were like five or 10 things like that, that I went and started to do. And what's crazy is the idea in my head at the beginning was, all right, I'll meet my wife doing these things. So I'll meet a woman I want to date. I wasn't necessarily sure it was going to be my wife, but someone to have a serious relationship with. And um, I didn't. What I did was I met all of her friends. And then I got to know her friends and her friends introduced me to her. And so like, that's the key about doing the sort of activities that the person you want to meet is doing that you also enjoy. It's not just meeting them. It's getting into those social circles where those people are. Because most pe- even now, most people meet partners through other people. Like internet dating has taken a huge chunk of almost all the other ways that people meet off. Like it's eaten into that market share, so to speak. But the one thing that stayed fairly consistent and still is the highest sort of ranking way is through friends or through an introduction. And so most guys especially have pretty limited groups of friends and are not friends with the type of people who are friends with the women they want to be with. And so that's what ended up happening for me. I met a lot of great women directly, but the woman that I ended up dating seriously and now I'm married to and have a kid with, I was introduced to her by people I met doing CrossFit actually. specifically. Mm -hmm. So what was crazy about that story? Number one was the intentionality that you had. Have you read Darren Hardy's book, Compound Effect by Chance? I know you're a well-read guy. No, no, I haven't actually. He basically wrote, same sort of thing, but basically my future wife, here's the qualities I want her to have. But kind of flip that around too. Here's the qualities I need to have to attract that person. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went through that too. Yeah, that was yeah, the way behind that, yeah. Yeah, so he ended up meeting Georgia, his wife now. But as I was listening to that story, I was just thinking about it. And obviously, this is a podcast for financial advisors. I was like, man, there's so much an advisor can take from that for trying to attract his avatar client, right? Here is the ideal client that I want because no different than when you were dating, I'm not going to probably meet the woman of my dreams in a bar. I'm probably going to meet her hanging out with you know, people doing good things with their life. And so if we flip that concept that worked for you, do you have ideas? I know you're a genius when it comes to marketing. Do you have ideas on it? If I'm a financial advisor and I want to start to work with high net worth individuals. Dude, I can tell you exactly how we're actually doing that with my company with, I think we have a crazy number of financial advisor clients. So my company is called Book in a Box. We essentially created a new way to turn an idea into a book where we have a structured interview process. And pretty much all you have to do is spend time on the phone with us and know what you're talking about. And we turn your ideas into a book in your words and your voice. 
And we have a lot of financial advisor clients for the reason I'm sure that you and your listeners understand is because it's very hard for financial advisors to advertise. Most ways you can't advertise, like by law, and most sort of ways that other types of businesses find customers, you guys can't do, right? So he came to us with the exact same problem you have. And I kind of spitballed with him. And what I realized was the bulk of his client is a wide client base, but he has two kind of specialties that he kind of lucked into, but they became specialties for him. One was entrepreneurs, like especially in direct sales and internet marketing. Mm -hmm. And the other one was high net worth divorced women. He had like two different clusters of clients. And so he was trying to figure out a way he could write a book to talk to both of them. And I was like, dude, there's no way. There's nothing you can say that is going to be interesting to both of those groups of people. So instead of trying to hit both with one book, we did one book that was geared only to high net worth divorce women because we kind of looked at the market and realized that there were no really good financial planning books for women going through a divorce who came from a high net worth sort of situation. Meaning I think he defined high net worth as $10 million in assets or above or something like that. But he was confused because he's like, dude, 80% of the advice is going to be the same as almost any other financial planning book. It's only maybe 20%, maybe even 15 that's different, but it's very little that's different. And I'm mm-hmm. like, dude, you're thinking the wrong way. You're thinking from your perspective as the writer. Just like guys think, well, I'm all these good things, so I should meet women. But if you don't put yourself in front of those women in a way that they can understand that you're those good things, they're not going to come find mm-hmm. you. Same thing with him. Dude, you know these things for uh, high net worth divorced women that very few other people know, but they're not going to go looking for you. You need to go show them who you are and what you know, right? It needs to be for them, not for everybody. So what he did was we wrote the book that's essentially the guide for managing your money through a divorce for a high net worth woman specifically. And mm-hmm. it was very detailed, fantastic. And then instead of doing any sort of nonsense marketing, like trying to like get attention or New York Times or whatever, what we did was print out, he got a bunch of hardcovers, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000. And he lives in a big, big city. And he went around to every divorce attorney in the city and gave them like 50 copies. And he was a beautiful hardcover, like the best thing you could find in Barnes & Noble is what it looked like. And he gave those to the uh, divorce attorneys. And the divorce attorneys loved it because what is the third question every woman asks a divorce attorney? What do I do about my money? How do I manage my money? And lawyers either can't or won't give them any advice about that. So what the book was, was a way for the lawyer to feel like he had serviced his client. Like, here is the book on this subject, how to manage your money for a woman going through a divorce with 10 million or more in assets. Like very, very specific, very niche. So she felt like, oh, wow, this guy has a book that's just literally for me specifically. Mm -hmm. Lawyer felt great because he helped her but didn't have to sort of like learn anything else or violate any sort of like practice boundaries that he's not allowed to violate. And then the book was amazing for the financial advisor. Why? Because like 40% of the women who got the book did at least one call or consult with him. Because they're like, okay, this is all genius, but I don't want to do this myself. I mean, if you're worth $30 million, you don't spend your time managing your money. You spend your time making money and you pay someone to manage your money. And so he ended up, I think, doubling or tripling the size of his practice, his practice, his entire practice and his like assets under management or whatever, however you measure it. I think he's coming up on tripling it through this one way because he not only went after a specific niche, but he created something that spoke directly to that niche and specifically to that niche. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. uh, He essentially positioned himself as the authority for divorced women. Well, the funny thing is he already was like, he already had a bunch of those clients. So he kind of knew all their specific kind of differences from other clients and all the tricks and tips and things that they had to worry about. But he was relying on referrals or he's relying on them to find him. Right. If you approach dating, like I'm great, people should find me, like it's kind of an entitled mindset, you're going to end up either alone or with someone lame. 
But if you are hungry and you go in search of great people, if you put yourself in front of great people and display your greatness in a way that they can understand, then they're going to get it and they're going to connect with you. The exact same thing is true for financial advisors. If you have a specialty or an expertise or a skill or like wisdom that other people don't have that is valuable to a group of people, you need to display that to them in a way that they can understand and they can engage with. And then they'll connect with you because they'll understand the benefit that you can provide them. Make sense? Right. Yeah, completely. All right. So to piggyback on that thought, how do you write a book where you're the authority? And so for example, this guy we're referencing here, how do they contact him from the book? Is there a soft sell or a way to position yourself towards the end of the book, maybe, or throughout the book of, hey, here's how to contact me or here's how to take the next step? What we recommend for our clients is they don't really sell at all. Mm -hmm. uh, because no one likes to be sold, no one wants to be sold, and no one trusts anyone selling, right? Mm -hmm. So the best thing you can do is like kind of what I'm doing right now, actually. Like I'm not saying all your listeners should come write a book with us because of these reasons. As soon as I say that, their minds are going to turn off. Mm -hmm. So what did I do instead? I talked about what we actually had done with an actual client who's exactly like most of your listeners and what that does is that lets people sell themselves in their own mind. It displays my expertise. It tells people that my expertise matches up with their need or the problem they want to solve. And if it does, what they start doing is thinking, okay, can I do this myself? And in most cases, some people can, and that's fine. But most people either can't or don't want to. Like financial advisors and me are kind of in the same boat. People can learn what you guys do and do it themselves. But the opportunity cost of learning all that and the learning curve is steep and the opportunity cost is high. So it's usually much wiser for people, especially with a lot of assets, just come to you guys and let you do what you do best. I'm in the exact same boat. I know books and publishing and writing better than any of our clients. They're all smart people. They're all professionals. Could they learn what I know? Of course they could. Could they learn it? to be as good as I am, given enough time, yeah. But like, if you're a financial advisor, your time is worth hundreds, thousands of dollars an hour. Why the hell would you spend it learning a skill that's only going to benefit you once in a specific yeah. way, right? You should just go hire the expert at that and let them do what they do in a way that can help you, right? So like a lot of financial advisors will tell us, oh, they'll say, if I put everything I know in the book, why is someone going to hire me? It's for that exact reason. Because doing everything that you know how to do, it can look easy, but it's not. We have a book that outlines our entire method. It's called the Book in a Box Method. It's all the templates we use. It's our exact process. I cannot tell you how many people have bought the book, started, got maybe a third or a halfway through and came to us and was like, your method is genius. This is way harder than I realized. Can you guys just do it with me or for me? Or like, let's just pick up, you know, like, let's start again and let me pay you and let's do it right. That's probably 10% of our clients. And I think at least what we've seen with our financial advisor clients, it's the exact same thing. They write about their expertise. And then what happens is they just talk about, okay, like, you know, with client X, you know, pseudonym, she had these problems with her money. Here's exactly how we solve them. Here's the lessons you need to take with your money. And you don't say, you know, if you're a client of mine, I'll do the same for you. The implication is there. And then you just talk at the end in your bio, you know, I own X company. Here's my contact info, et cetera, et cetera. People will reach out to you if you have knowledge and wisdom and expertise that will solve the problem. You, in fact, if you can do it really well, you have to turn people away. The more you pitch, the harder it is to get them in the door. The less you pitch and the more you show them and tell them how to solve the problem and help them, the more they want to work with you. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, I'm a good example of that 10% you were just talking about because I had a professional writer hired. I'm in the middle of your process right now. And prior to hooking up with you guys, I probably spent six or eight months. Great writer. I was going to pay him a lot of money. And just your process, it's seamless. It's, hey, if I can, like you say, get the idea into a book. So if I can verbalize it, I can write a book. And it was luckily I had a couple good friends that turned me on to you guys, John Rulin, Cameron Harold, who's been on the show before. So I'm just glad I found you. I would have been struggling for probably another year to get this thing out. 
Dude, it's so funny you say that. I went through the same thing with my money. Like when I came into a bunch of money, I was like, oh, I could do this myself. <laughs> I can't even, like, I don't even want to talk about the stupid things that I did. And eventually, same thing. I had some friends, like really rich friends who were like, what the hell are you doing? This is why wealth managers exist. <laughs> Here's yeah. my guy. And I talked to like four or five and now I have my own financial advisor and like, I don't think about it anymore. I just worry about running my company. Yeah. I'm going to throw a different question at you than what I've got prepared here because that opens up another avenue. Somebody that's, well, I put this in the intro, but three number one New York Times seller. And also, this was crazy stat I didn't know. One of only three guys, I think, still to have three on the New York Times bestseller nonfiction list all at the same time. Yeah, me, Malcolm Gladwell, and Michael Lewis. Yeah. Craziness. So obviously, that can lead to a nice stream of income flowing into the bank account. How did your existing financial advisor, you interviewed four or five, you're an intelligent guy that has a lot of money. Why did you choose him or her? So basically because I made the mistake a lot of newbies make. I kind of knew nothing and I got a little bit of information. I thought I knew a lot, but I, I didn't. And so eventually I was humbled, you know, trading myself. Of course, mm-hmm. I did poorly. I, it was the worst because I did really well at first. So I thought I was a genius, which is the worst. That's <laughs> like gambling on sports. How it always works. It's exactly what happened. And so I lost enough money where I was like, okay, I'm being stupid. I'm not smart. I need to go find experts. And so I basically just went to all my rich friends. And I know uh, like quite a few billionaires. And so I just asked them, like, mm-hmm. what do you do? Whatever. And they kind of walked me through And all of them said the same thing. They all said, so I'm not a super expert at the financial planning sort of space and all the different types of advisors. But the big thing that they all told me to do was you want someone who doesn't make money selling products to you. You want someone who essentially is like fee-based or percentage-based. So essentially their incentives are lined up exactly with yours. Mm -hmm. When you make money, they make money. When you lose money, they lose money. And I'm not sure the difference in names, but one of my buddies connected me with his guy and his minimum sort of client like number was like 10 times what I had. But he read my stuff in college, my books. And so he's like, dude, I don't give a shit. Like I'll take you on as a client because I just want to brag to my friends, you're my client. And so he's ended up doing really well with my stuff. And it's been great, but it comes down to basic human psychology. You want to work with people, not just who are good, but people whose incentives are lined up with yours. That was the lesson. And then they walked me through the specifics of it, but it really just boils down to basic human psychology for me. Well, there's a lesson there for financial advisors. You didn't go to a public seminar. You didn't listen to his radio show. You just had rich friends that worked with them already. So it was that circle of influence. Word of mouth. That was 100%. Yeah. There was nothing any financial advisor could have done to sell me on this because I didn't know enough to even know what to look for, what to read, right? And I didn't want to invest in learning the time to learn all this stuff. So, all right, I just went to the people who knew and then they kind of cut through all the noise and nonsense and said, here's the two things you have to look for. Go meet my guy or here's three guys I know that are good. And then uh, that's kind of how it worked. One other question on that. Was it any sort of an office that integrated tax planning, estate planning, all in one along no. the planning? Man, I would love that. No. Like I've been looking for that for a really good comprehensive family office that integrates all that. The problem is that I'm finding is like I'm in the seven figure range, right? Mm-hmm. And the really good family offices that integrate all those services, basically you need mid to high eight figures really at all. Mm-hmm to walk in the door with them to make it worth their time. I'm just not quite in that range. I'm trying. I'm not quite in that range yet. You know, I'm in the millionaire range, unfortunately. And not, <laughs> I'm not the, the doctor millionaire. Hey, give give book in a box, like probably uh, one or two more yeah. years. It's not going to be long, buddy. Yeah, so. I know. But I'll tell you, there was a financial advisor that integrated all that, especially, I know that there's a lot of software platforms trying to do that. Wealthfront and like robo-advisors. They're not there yet. I don't know if they'll ever get there because of the complexity of that. I don't know if that'll ever happen. But I do know if there was someone who could do that at scale, mm-hmm. you know, for people like me who have money but are not really ultra high net worth wealthy, that would be, that'd be a no-brainer for me. That'd be easy. It sounds like the story about how Book in a Box was born, that entrepreneurial problem that you need to fix. So mm-hmm. if you have some spare time just so we can get started on that as a side gig. Yeah, yeah, right. Because I got all the time in the world. Uh, I know you're not very busy at all. So, 
So let's go into, I think this is a huge lesson for financial advisors. You already said it. Their time is worth hundreds of dollars an hour. But what I find is even some of the very best get bogged down in just the minutia of day-to-day stuff that, you know, high net worth client like Tucker calls in, has an issue of now I'm on the phone with him for 30 minutes to an hour. And even some of the very best have issues here. So there's a lesson in how Book in a Box was born, how you basically just decided I'm going to fix a problem, which is a lot of people want to write books, but nobody actually writes them. Can you tell maybe the short version of that story, the challenge that was made to you? Um, yeah. I think there's a lot that it can really bleed over into financial services as well. Yeah, yeah. So I was at an entrepreneur dinner and this woman came to me and she's like, hey, you know, you're the publishing book guy, right? And I'm like, yeah, that's my entire identity on earth is books. <laughs> and so she's like, yeah, I've had people ask me for 10 years to write a book about what I know about what I do. I like I tried and I hated it. I don't want to sit at the computer for a year typing and I have a family now. I run a big business. I don't have time for this, but I want to get this book out of my head. How do I do it without having to go through that process? And I kind of like, I got confused and I looked at her and I'm like, are you asking me how to write a book without writing it? And she said, yeah, actually, I kind of am. And then, of course, being the total elitist asshole writer that I am, I like started making fun of her and started like calling her out and saying she doesn't work hard and all that kind of stuff, which was, of course, total nonsense. This woman had done way more in her life than I had. And so she kind of stopped me and she rolled her eyes at me and stopped me. She said, Tucker, this is an entrepreneur dinner, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. She's like, are you an entrepreneur? And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I'd like to think so. She's like, "Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. An actual entrepreneur would help me solve my problem and not lecture me about hard work. I was like, like, I was, she was right though, man. I was so gut punched because she was a hundred percent right. And so of course I became obsessed with this idea. How do I get a book out of her head without her having to sit down and type it out? And I couldn't get past the idea that you can't write without sitting down to actually write, et cetera, et cetera. And then it all came to me in a flash that I was being an idiot that, think about this, most of the great books of Western culture were not actually written down by the author. Socrates never wrote a word down. Plato did. Jesus Christ never wrote a word down. His apostles did. Buddha never wrote a word down. His disciples did. Malcolm X didn't. Marco Polo didn't. Churchill dictated most of his books to his secretary. I mean, we can go down the list. And I realized, well, Jesus Christ can do it. Why can't Melissa? And so I got on a whiteboard and I wrote down every single thing I have to do to write a book when I go through my process. And I realized that I could do everything in that process for her except the ideas and the content. Because her book is like about, I don't know, some nonsense, pop-up retail. Like, some nonsense topic that I'm just, I don't care about and I'm not going to learn about. That's ghostwriting. If you pay someone to learn about your topic and take your ideas and they just write their own book, that's called ghostwriting. That costs 100000 or more. And there was no price that you could pay me to learn about retail. I hate it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, how can I do this where I get her ideas and words into a book, but she doesn't do anything back end? So I basically realized I just get on the phone with her and interview her. And I thought it would be as simple as just interviewing, but interviewing is very complicated. And so I kind of had to figure out a very structured way to do it, almost like an algorithm, right? Like I do one set of interviews, I get one thing, I structure that properly, I go to the next, I go to the next, I go to the next. And it ended up working out great. We did a book. The book is called The Pop-Up Paradigm. It's in its second edition now. And it blew up. It blew up in the retail space. So Mm -hmm. Melissa went from, she tripled inbound leads to her business, doubled overall business, it's probably made her a couple million dollars, the book alone. You know, she's signed all kinds of deals with major like national brands, major mall companies, all this stuff. And because it was the first book in pop-up retail. And it branded her as the authority and the expert, which she already was. It was just kind of the proof of that, right? And what's crazy is it blew her business up and it sold only like a thousand copies. <laughs> because the space of people who care about pop-up retail is tiny right? But those people are all decision makers. They're all influencers. They all have money. They all actually apply these ideas in their business, right? And so that book alone, not only did it launch Book in a Box, it totally reconceptualized for me how modern books are going to be used and how most professionals should be looking at their book, not as a piece of their identity or something that is going to be their legacy 
or something that has to appeal to a million people. It's really more of like an advanced business card marketing sort of technique to show their potential clients why they should hire them. Not tell them, not sell them, show them, right? It's a way to create trust with a potential client that is more effective than almost anything else I know of other than direct word of mouth, direct Mm -hmm. referrals. That's always the most effective. And second most is a book. Mm -hmm. Well, and you said it somewhere, might've been in a conversation we had prior, but you're like, hey, if the idea sucks, then the book's going to suck, right? So the ideas have to be great anyway. And all you're doing is just putting them in a package that's easily transferable to other people. So this is good timing because I feel like Book in a Box came around at the perfect time because back in the day, I've got a great idea, but I've got this small niche market. We had a great conversation on traditional publishing versus self-publishing. And I could have had a great idea back in the day, but if I didn't have the big enough audience, no traditional publishers running with that idea, right? So can you give us kind of Tucker Max 101 on traditional publishing versus self-publishing and just your unfiltered thoughts there? Right. So the world has totally changed. 25 years ago is exactly what you said. If you wanted to do a book, your only real option was traditional publishing. And so that means going to Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, whoever, Random House, and then you had to write a book that had a big enough audience that they would want to pay you money to write it because they think they're going to sell copies, right? And that's fine for that model. The only other option was what were called vanity presses. And those were like the millionaire ego pieces, right? Those were the two options. Right. And now it's 25 years later and the world has totally changed. In fact, I would say it's switched. I would say traditional publishing is now the vanity press because it's so easy to self-publish and it's so effective. And if you use the right people, you can do a book that is just as professional, if not better than you would ever do with the traditional publisher that the only people who now, aside from the people who are selling millions of books like Malcolm Gladwell, the only people going to traditional publishers are the ones who feel like they need the ego boost of being chosen and selected by the system, right? It's a total vanity ego play. There's almost no reason to go with traditional publishing. Otherwise, you just want to feel good about yourself that a bunch of elitist literary snobs in New York picked you. For real. I mean, that's it. Again, aside from if you're a big selling novelist, if you're Malcolm Gladwell, if you're James Patterson, it can make sense. But even those people now are starting to build their own publishing companies. I mean, I was the first one to do it. And I taught Hugh Howe and a bunch of those people how to do it. And now most of the big authors actually, some of the big authors are leaving and it's going to accelerate. So along those lines, you had three number one New York Times bestsellers. Were all of those through traditional self-publishing? What was the mix there? Yeah, so they were all through traditional publishers because if you're a professional writer, Mm -hmm. like you make money by selling your words, then it is a slightly different calculus. Here's the problem with with almost all book and publishing advice. It's geared towards professional writers. Mm -hmm. Your audience are not professional writers. Like as much as, you know, financial advisors like to fancy themselves creatives and, oh, I'm a great writer or whatever, you might be even but you're not selling your words, you're selling something else. And your words are a way to get people in to sell something else. Writers actually sell their words, right? And so those are totally different groups who should look at traditional publishing and self-publishing from totally different angles. What I was just saying, all my advice is geared toward financial professionals or CEOs, business people who want to write books or who have in them want to use books to help their business. That's what I'm talking about. We can talk about traditional publishing from the writer perspective if you want. It's not totally different, but it is different enough that the same advice does not apply to the two different groups. Yeah, I think at this point, traditional publishing makes zero sense for 99.9% of all my clients. So I think that's great advice. So let's flip the script. Obviously, to have New York Times bestsellers, even as a traditional publishing client, you had to know how to market. And that's one of the cool things as I've been exposed to more of your ideas, you're a guy that knows how to market whatever you decide that you want to get behind. So if you had advice, I'm a financial advisor. I just came out with my first book. I want to get the word out. What are some ideas of how they should do that? So, all right, here's what I'm going to tell you about marketing. Because the position you just set up is so great because I get this all the time. Not our clients at Book in a Box, but other people will come to me and say, okay, I wrote my book. Now, how do I market it? And I'll look at the book and I'll say, you can't market it. It's terrible. 
And they're like, no, no, no. But like, no, I mean, I'll ask them like, what's your book about? I just pretend the book's great. What do I do to market it? And so then I'll say, no, no, I need to look at the book. And I'll look at the book. And I'm like, there's nothing you can do. You can't market this. And they get upset. And I'm like, well, and then I walk them through why the book's terrible. Even if the ideas in the book are good, all the decisions that they made before they started, quote, marketing, determined the marketing path that they can take. And they screwed themselves and they did really something terrible, which is why I do. I can't tell you how many times people have written books and then it started to happen a lot on their own. I don't need Book in a Box. They do it on their own and they come back to us and they're like, hey, can we do this again and do it right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks easy, but it's not. So here's why the best marketing you can do, to put it succinctly, the best marketing you can do is write a great book. And when I say write a great book, I actually don't even necessarily mean you know beautiful sentences and all that sort of stuff. By write a great book, I mean you need to identify why you're writing this book. Like what results are you trying to get from the book? Then you need to identify who the audience the book is for. And then you need to identify why that audience is going to care about your book, right? So to go back to the example I gave, yeah. the financial advisor that we worked with, he wanted to write a book about like, you know, general financial advice. And I'm like, dude, there's a million of those books. No one cares. If you don't have a different angle, you're not going to sell at all, right? And it's not going to attract anyone at all. Yeah. And so we drilled down. Why are you writing this book? And for him, it was client acquisition, right? And he wanted the book to be an authority piece and a lead gen for client acquisition. So, okay, great. What audience are you trying to reach? What clients? And so that's when we drilled him down to his two big clusters are entrepreneurs, direct marketing entrepreneurs, and high net worth divorced women. And it took him a while to realize this, even though it seems, I'm sure, obvious to all your clients. There is no way to talk to both of those people at once. There's just no overlap between those groups. There's no subject where those two groups unite on things. And so like he realized, all right, I got to pick one. And he picked high net worth divorced women. And then the next question was easy. You know, why are they going to care? And he's like, oh, as soon as they get divorced, their first question is, how do I manage my money? And there's 20 things that they need to do that are different than other people. Great. So then it became really easy, right? That whole process is called positioning. And it comes from the old school sort of book publishing terms where like literally what place in the bookstore, what position on the shelves is the book going to sit, right? Is it a marketing book? Is it a self-help book? Is it a business book, right? So we position his book as solving a very specific problem, money management for his very specific group, divorced high net worth women. Marketing was super easy for him. Now, he's not going to sell a million copies. He won't even sell 10,000 copies. But the first set of marketing, like we talked about, was giving out copies to divorced lawyers. And he actually has not moved on to steps two, three, and four yet because he has too many clients with just that one step. Like you could not think of anything more niche marketing-wise than what he did. And it cost him, at scale, hardcovers cost $2 a copy with shipping and everything. Let's just call it $3 a copy. So 10,000 copies, he spent $30,000. And then even opportunity cost of his time, let's just call it 50 grand. He spent 50 grand. And I think a client is worth, I don't know, something like 25 grand to him or more. And so like he's, I don't know, dozens of clients already. I mean, I think he's getting close to breaking a million dollars worth of clients. And people think, well, that's not marketing. That literally is marketing. Marketing begins by thinking, why am I writing the book? Who am I talking to? And why will they care? And if you nail that, marketing is easy. Now, I'll tell you what steps two, three, and four are for him are doing content marketing, pulling content out of the book and putting it in places online where divorced women look. It's getting in front of your audience, right? Mm -hmm. So where are high net worth divorced women getting their media? getting it from certain financial sites, certain women's sites. And so he's just going to put his content on those sites. And then those women will come to him because he is now the expert for their specific problem. Does this make sense? Yeah. So to clarify there, here's my book. It's 250 pages long. Here's a little sample section of it. I just turned that into an article, put it on a website where I know my ideal client's going to be. And by the way, they now know I'm the author. They either go out, get the book or contact him directly. Yep, exactly. We even do that as a service. It's called basically thought leader in a box. And like people who want to use sort of ongoing content marketing to establish themselves as an authority and thought leader in a space to create a big flow of clients. We've just rolled that out. We have about 10 clients we do that with. 
and the book is sort of the beginning and then we build a whole platform for them. Like, it doesn't make sense for everybody, but a lot of people it makes a lot of sense for. And it's really, really simple. The problem is so many people think of marketing as like, how do I get famous? How do I get on everyone's lips? And it's like, you can't because no one cares about you. Like they don't. And I don't even mean it as an insult. They care about themselves. And so if you can produce something that matters to them, that's how you get on their lips. And so if you're an expert in a small space, you're just not going to get on everyone's lips. It's just not possible. And why would you care? Like, why would that guy care about, I don't know, Uber drivers and people working in McDonald's knowing about him and his book? They can't be clients. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you care about getting uh, you know, in front of them? It doesn't make any sense. Then it's just about ego. You know, It's not about actually marketing your services. It's interesting. I was just thinking today's day and age. So go back 25 years ago when we were talking about traditional publishers. What, there was like 25 TV stations or 30 or however many back in the day. Now you've got... Four. They're used four, to, yeah. You're too young. You can't remember when they were... Yeah, you're like the same age. What are you talking about? You're like maybe <laughs> 40 tops. I'm 41. 41. There you go. You've got five years on me. So that's intriguing there because as the age of the iPhone just overwhelms people with information, it's even more important to go deeper in that niche than it used to be. It's not even important. It's crucial. It's the only way. It's the only way. Huh. Very interesting. So, all right, we got step one, which he went to his call at the top of his lead funnel, which was the attorneys that were actually performing the divorces. Content marketing, you said was step two, three, four, five. Do you have any others you'd like to throw out? Again, it's just getting in front of your audience in different ways. So it's creating the content marketing, putting it in like high-end financial channels, getting him established. So like getting him on CNBC and stuff won't be hard because those channels are watched by rich people and how women should manage a divorce. They're going to be happy to do a 10, 15, 20 minute segment on that. It's not a problem. You know, like it's not a problem because he has specific information that is valuable to a specific set of people that that media channel talks to, right? Mm-hmm. Those are essentially the next steps. And then, well, I think he'll eventually end up becoming a client for a thought leader in a box because he's building his practice. And I think he's going to build an entire practice around high net worth divorced women. And so he'll bring in other financial planners who work under him. And he's essentially just going to create the top of the funnel and then push clients to different people in his little splinter group. Mm-hmm. And we'll just build the top of the funnel for him. It's just a matter of, Marketing is really easy when you think of it as people have a problem. I have information that can help them solve the problem. I'm going to find a way to put it in front of them. Mm -hmm. That's it. Then it's really easy. Marketing is like, oh, yeah, that's it. That's all I have to do. The problem is most people think of marketing in like a Hollywood entertainment way. Like, oh, splash and pizzazz and cool tricks and stunts and wage profiteering and all this nonsense. It doesn't make sense for most people, man. I mean, like, if you're Russell Brand and, like, your whole thing is being funny and a comedian and being shocking and whatever, then that's great. Then you should absolutely use all those tactics. Those tactics apply to, like, 001% of businesses. Mm-hmm. Most businesses exist to solve a problem for people. So all you have to do is identify who, what problem it is, and then show them how you can solve it. Don't even sell them on it. Just show them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no trick to it. It's just that the people who ask for tricks are the ones who are selling BS, quite frankly. And so they have to trick people. Or it's people who, like I said, have a different conception in their mind of what marketing has to be versus what actually works. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what's crazy. This guy wrote one book. It was right in the niche he needed to be in. Literally built an entire practice off of it. And oh, let's say he exhausts all high net worth divorced women. Now he just retitles it to niche number two, which was the online entrepreneur and probably 80% of the same content, a few new chapters that apply to them. Yeah. Is he already writing it? No, no, no. Because he's been too busy with the divorced woman. Yeah. When he has time, right? (laughs) When he has time after all these clients are serviced and set up, he might move to his other niche. (laughs) (laughs) And then by the way, he'll probably come up with some other niche. Well, it's, How Elrod's doing it right now with Miracle Morning, right? He's digging into the Miracle Morning for entrepreneurs, the Miracle Morning for families. And what's interesting is he's bringing in a co-author that knows that niche as well. So he's bringing in their tribe as well. I've seen a few different guys do that. So, all right, this will be a fun one. So read a blog post of yours. And what I loved about it, 
the beauty of your writing is you're vulnerable and you just, you share like, here's what was going through my head. Right. And this one was actually the story of how you fired yourself as the CEO of book in a box. And Uh the reason I bring up this story is because if there's one thing that financial advisors struggle with, and I think all type A personalities and entrepreneurs, it's I'm the guy that can do everything best. Therefore, I really have a tough time delegating and handing off tasks and trusting. So can you give us your version of firing yourself as CEO and what that did for your business when you did it? So basically, Zach and I, my co-founder and I started the company and we did a pretty good job. Once we realized what we had in our hands, we did a pretty good job establishing it. I mean, we got product market fit almost out of the gate. Basically, we did actually out of the gate. We did a really good job bootstrapping it. Like we haven't taken any VC money. We're profitable, self-funded. We did a great job getting to sort of like the first critical mass phase transition stage. And that was like, for our process, if we're signing five authors a month, we can basically handle it with like four or five people and then freelancers. But once we got to about 15, it didn't just get three times more complicated. It got 300 times more complicated. It became exponentially more complicated. It's the difference between like making a Ferrari by hand and the Ford Fusion assembly line. Mm-hmm. Like they're not a little bit different. They're totally different things. And so Zach and I both just assumed because we started the company and we'd been really smart in how we grew it and all these sorts of things that we could also just stay on as CEO and COO and scale it and whatever, right? And we realized through a series of stupid mistakes that we were failing as leaders of the company, as like managers. And basically, we were about to screw up a can't miss idea. And not even like the product. The process was great. We were doing great books. It was like everything else. It was the logistics and mechanics of it and the organization of it and all this sort of adult business aspects. We just were not doing a good job scaling those. And so one of our clients actually had just scaled the software company from like 2 million to 100 million. And he was doing a book with us. And he's like the type who's like, he's like me. He'll just tell you straight out. And he kept calling me being like, dude, you've got this amazing company and this amazing service and you guys are screwing it up. Like every time he would have an interaction with our company, he would call me and be like, here's what you did wrong. This, this, this. And I'm like, and he was right every time. (laughs) Those are fun fun calls. Oh, dude, it was brutal because like I couldn't even argue. He was just right. Anyway, long story short, eventually I got him to come on board as an advisor. And then once he saw behind the curtain, he realized the company was actually even better than he thought in the ways that he like, was excited about. And we were even more screwed up in the fundamental ways than he understood. He's like, these are all fixable things. These are all really simple to fix. We just didn't have the skill to fix them. And so basically, Zach and I had to admit to ourselves, we didn't have the skill set, which is like, most people look on the outside like, who cares? So you're not seven feet tall. You can't be an NBA center. It's fine. You can do other things. But when you start the company, man, and when you kind of get that momentum, you attach, I think, a lot of identity to that. And plus, it's like such a, everyone's like, oh, CEO, whatever. Like, it's this high status position and all these sort of things. Like, you kind of get sucked into that trap. But I kind of saw what I was doing. And so Zach, and I decided to fire ourselves from our position. And we hired JT. To, he, he replaced me as CEO. And then he brought his number two to replace Zach as ops director, essentially. And now Zach and I are obviously still in the company. We're just doing totally different things. We're only focusing our time on the things that we're good at, as opposed to trying to do everything and things we're not good at. And now we've had back-to-back multi-million dollar quarters. We're like, we're a hundred times better as a company. In six months, this dude has been here. And like, it's breathtaking to see the difference, actually. Huh. So that's only been six months ago that that happened? (laughs) What's your revenue done in that six months percentage-wise? We've done 35% of the revenue we've done in the two and a half years we've been operating as a company has come in the last six months. Wow. That's incredible. Congrats. Maybe 40%, right? It's because of JT. So from a psychology standpoint, I think... What's interesting is really smart people get that I should probably step aside and let somebody else do this. It's just the ego, like you're talking about, hey, I'm the CEO or I have this certain title that gets in the way. Was it just you woke up one morning, you're like flipping the switch, I'm just doing this. Was there a turning point? Was there something that triggered it where you're now cool with it? 
Man, I, I've done a lot of work on myself. You know, like I spent four years in psychoanalysis going four times a week and meditation. And, and like, yeah, I think it was just a product of the work I've done on myself, man, that doing great work on yourself doesn't mean you stop having like negative emotions or you stop making mistakes. It means that you see them quickly and you have the tools to fix them and correct them. That's a mistake I think a lot of people understand. Like, oh, if I meditate, I can push all these emotions away. It's like, no, the feelings are not going anywhere. What meditation does, it gives them a space to come up and have their say so they're not screwing with you in a different time when you don't realize it. And so that's really all it was, man. I think it was just an accumulation of all the work I've done. I was able to see that it came down to either I can make this about me like I could make it about me, stay a CEO, and at best, greatly throttle the growth of this company as I learn how to do this job. At worst, possibly sink the company because I don't learn how to do it fast enough. Or I can realize that it's not about me, that I'm just one part of a team and a mission. And the job has grown past me and I need to step aside for someone who can handle it. And once I realized that it's not about me, then it was actually way easier to stomach and it's like, okay, it's not that I am a failure. It's that I don't have a skill set necessary for this role for the next five, 10 years. So I need to step aside for someone who does. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about that is you obviously do have some incredible skill sets. So now you're doing those probably full time and 10 times better. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's go to, you're a guy that gets a ton of stuff done. I mean, you're writing books, you're running companies. Do you have a morning routine you stick to? What's the driver of being able to say that? I feel like I don't get anything done. <laughs> yeah, so I, mean, I have a two-year-old son and we got another one coming. So we have to have routines. I get up at 6.30 every day with my son. My wife is pregnant, so she gets to sleep in. I get up at 6.30. We go for a walk. Me and him and the dog go for a walk around the neighborhood. Come back. He watches his like iPad. He loves craft shows. He just like how to make things. Any video, that's what he watches. That and he watches Peppa Pig in Spanish, which I cannot understand. He's obsessed on his own. He picks Spanish on his own. I mean, his preschool, like one of the teachers only speaks Spanish, so like it makes sense. But like he loves Peppa Pig in Spanish, and it's so weird because it's like Spanish with an English accent. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But he loves it. So then I'll make breakfast and, you know, we eat our oatmeal and eggs and do whatever. And then mom comes down. And then when she comes down, I usually go up and meditate. Then I come back and then usually she takes them to preschool. And then I, so we have an office that we work, which is great. We work is the best. And then, you know, I what to do, I do, you know, like I have a pretty creative job. So I'm on the phone all day or doing podcasts or writing. And so I do that. And then I'm home usually by five o'clock. And then five to seven is like family time. So dinner, playing with Bishop, doing whatever. And then he goes to bed 6.30 or 7. Then seven to 10 is like my wife and I time. Either we catch up on work or we hang out, we do whatever. And then I'm in bed at 10. I'm an old man now. I feel you, man. I've got three kids. They exponentially suck energy out of you the more you have. So get ready for number two. Yeah, we actually already hired a live-in in anticipation of number two. We have a guest house at our house. And like, she's already moved in. We got her set up, like everything, like household manager, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Smart, man. So to that, I want to rewind a second. You mentioned meditation. I dabble in it, you know, two to three times a week. Do you have a certain app that you use? Is there a set way that you found that just works for you? It's all bullshit. If you're using apps, and I know this is not a popular opinion, I will just tell you, if you are using apps to track meditation, and there are smart people who disagree with me, so I could be wrong. I think you're totally doing it wrong. It's like, you know, like the people that wear the little Fitbits to track their steps. And then if they forget their Fitbit, they don't care about walking around. It's like, you're not walking around for this stupid thing on your wrist. You know, that's supposed to be a tracking accountability device for you. It's not why you're doing it. And I feel like most of the people who use meditation apps, that's what they're doing. It's like, okay, I got to get my mindfulness today. Okay, I got my mindfulness. I'm going to go do something else. Like you have fucking lost the point. You are gone. No. So I did, I used Muse for a while and I realized I was falling into that trap. And so I stopped. So let's hit on that because I've used Muse too. And it felt stressful to meditate because it felt like it made it too much of a game where I was competing for those chirps every time I did it. 
Exactly. So you're just exactly to that's to go to a quiet place and, and hang out for a while. So I stripped it down to its essence. I literally went back to, I'm a big fan of primary sources. Most people have opinions and they don't even know where or how they got the opinions. Like most people couldn't tell you, oh yeah, I believe in free speech. Recite the first amendment for me. What? Exactly. Get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just repeating someone else's opinion. So for most things, I go back to primary sources. And so I did that for meditation. I literally went back and read primary sources for Buddha. And the closest we can get, obviously, are what his disciples wrote down. So we don't actually know literally what he said, but that's pretty close. And the way he describes meditation makes a lot of sense to me. It's basically sit in this position, focus on your breath, what comes up, recognize it, accept that it's a thought, investigate it, let it have its sort of space and make no judgment of it. And then refocus on your breath. And that's it. That's all it's about. You know? hmm. I'm sorry. I want to make sure I get the book in the show notes. What book did you read there? The one that I would recommend, I, mean, I, I kind of, I'm a lunatic about this stuff. I like went back to Blue Cliff Record and all that. I would not recommend reading that stuff. It's hard to get through. Egyptian Book of the Dead is like nonsense. I'll recommend two. One is called Buddha and Blue Jeans, which is really short. It's like 40 pages. That's like, if you just want a short primer on meditation, what I just said, it says like 15 different ways. It's really good because people try and make it complicated. And what Buddha and Blue Jeans does is emphasize very much that it's not complicated. It is simple to understand. It is hard to do is the problem, right? Yeah. If you want to really deeply understand sort of the Buddha and why he created the techniques he did and how they work mentally, I would actually recommend a book called The Trauma of Everyday Life by Mark Epstein. Mark Epstein is like one of the only, he's a psychoanalyst and a Buddhist. And he's one of the few people who kind of bridge those disciplines. He's like a friend of the Dalai Lama and stuff. And he's a really, really smart guy. And that book is a psychoanalytic reading of the Buddha. But mm-hmm. it's not like complicated. It's actually really straightforward and amazing. Or a third one I would recommend that's in between those two that is simple, easy to read, but a little bit more in-depth than Buddha and Blue Jeans is called 10% Happier by Dan Harris, I think, which is basically like this newscaster had a panic attack and he learned a meditation. And he's one of Mark Epstein's students. And so if you like 10% Happier, you're going to find Epstein, you're going to read his stuff anyway, because like that's really where Dan got everything from. But that book is a lot sort of easier to read for a lot of people. Cool. Appreciate that. Check those out. I haven't read any of those. I got to read more, man. So you're a well-read guy. When do you find time to read with children now? Is that morning, evening? iPhone, man. I'm all eBooks now because because my kid, it's basically like he goes to preschool by eight and doesn't come home till four or five. So I have plenty of time during the day. And now with JT, I mean, like we have a machine in our company now. I have time. So I sit down, I make time to read. Mm-hmm. Like I sit down and the thing that I've gotten really good at is being ruthless about what I finish. I'll start a lot and I finish almost nothing because most of it's nonsense mm-hmm. or not value add. So that's where most people are like, oh, you know, like yeah, if I started, I have to finish it. No, quit bad books. Mm. I do it every day. How do you know it's a book worth finishing? If you finish it. Jerry, dude, Jerry Seinfeld had the best saying about this ever. There's no such thing as attention span. There's only interesting and not interesting. Mm. That's a good point. All right, dude. Are you ready for rapid fire? Just throw a couple to, to wrap this thing up today. Let's do it. All right. This will be a fun one for you. I know you're a well-connected guy that knows a lot of successful people. When you hear the word successful, who's the first person you think of and why? I don't think of a specific person, man. Honestly, I get a scene in my mind Mm -hmm. is someone old on their deathbed surrounded by people that love them and that they love whose lives that they've made better. Like that to me is success is like when it's your time to go, you have done so much and you have so many great relationships that you're surrounded by people who love you. Like if you've been successful, that's what your life will look like. Mm -hmm. Is there a mentor that you've had where what I love about you is you're a guy that's evolved a lot through your career and you're still a young guy. Is there people that have come into your life where you're like, that's pulled me in a direction I want to go? No, I've never had really a mentor. I've kind of just taken a little bit from a lot of different places and sources. Mm -hmm. I kind of wish that the problem with me, man, is for most of my life, I don't think 
there were not a lot of people who could have mentored me and the ones who could have probably didn't want to put up with my BS. So like, I actually might be finally getting to the point in my life where I, I could actually have a mentor. The problem is who's going to mentor me, you know? I mean, there's a lot of people who know a ton of stuff that I don't know, of course. And so like in a specific field, like meditation or financial planning or whatever, there's a ton of people who can mentor me in a field. But like in terms of overall life mentor, I'm sure there are people out there. I'm not sure who it would be, you know? And I'm not sure what that relationship would look like. But listen, I'm always willing to learn more. Like I feel like the older I get, the more I know and the less I feel like I know. Yeah. I live my life the same way. It's as you open a door to a crowd of people that just have a different knowledge base and maybe a different level that they aspire to be at, then you're like, wow. And then it's just like the next level and next level and next level. So I'm with you on that thought. Huh. I don't know if you can give a short answer to this one. Favorite book you've ever read and why? I'll say Confederacy of Dunces because it's almost like the perfect novel. It's so funny. It's so brilliant. It's the novel that makes me sad in a way, because I know I'll never, I'll never be able to write. Like, it was amazing. Confederacy of Dunces. Super famous, yeah. John Kennedy Tool. In my opinion, the best novel ever written in English. Hmm. Is there a book that you've gifted over the years to people? There's a lot. Probably the one I've given away the most is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, just because I have a lot of writer friends and mm-hmm. creative friends, whatever. Probably that one. Is there a reason you give it away? Is there a specific thing you're like, I want people that I care about to know this out of that book? It's just, that book is very applicable to a lot of creatives. Mm-hmm. Let's go with this one. Best business advice you've ever received? I don't know if it's advice. It's something I realized. After, I might have read it somewhere. I, like, it's one of these things that seems obvious, except most people just don't really get it. I think most people forget what the purpose of business is. Like, business does not exist as an entity unto itself. Markets don't exist as an entity unto themselves. All business is, is meeting other people's needs. All it is. Like it's all about solving problems, meeting needs of other people. Outside of human interaction, there's no such thing as business. There's not some state of business or some business cloud somewhere, some land of business. It is just meeting each other's needs. That's all it is. And people forget like, oh, like, oh, what about the economy? I'm like, what are you talking about? The economy is just a bunch of transactions where people are adding value to each other's lives. You give me money, I give you a sandwich. You know, like we're both better off. I think people forget that. Like they look at it as this independent thing. Oh, it's just business. No, you're screwing me for whatever you want to call it. Call it what you want. But like, if you understand that that's all business is, that's the entire point of all economic transactions, then like it helps you take a step back and keep sort of perspective. And make sure you avoid the game of business or business theater, all those things, you know? It's interesting just because that, I feel like as things are getting more complicated in today's digital world, you look at these big corporations that, I mean, the reason I left a big corporation because I had 10 levels of management stacked on top of me and it was the most depressing thing in the world. And I see now you create a company out of nothing, right? I mean, it's literally nothing one day. It's an idea at a dinner table. And now it's a legitimate real business. And it's really not a massive corporation. It's just a bunch of people very well aligned to fix problems. Do you see with the digital economy, do you actually see where someday corporations could go back the other way and kind of crumble to where they're more more laterally built? Of course, man. This is what some of the best minds of business are actively debating on the edge right now. I mean, the theory of the firm, like Coast and all the great minds in the University of Chicago where I went to college, the entire theory of the firm is a way to reduce transaction costs. Well, in a world of zero transaction costs of information, the theory of the firm breaks down, right? So then what replaces it? I think what we're eventually going to end up being replaced by, we're going to be replaced by network tribes that will have sort of, in certain ways, more arm's length relationships and in certain ways, far more emotionally connected relationships. And no, the corporation will be a relic of the industrial era. It's a way to reduce transaction costs in a world of high cost of capital, high initial investment. That's what it's for. All right, man. Last one. This has been a blast. So I appreciate the time. One piece of advice. So obviously around financial advisors, or I guess entrepreneurs in general, what's one piece of advice that you would share that's led to your success? I'll go a little bit meta. The more truly curious you are, the more you ask questions and the more you 
deeply, deeply try to examine reality for what it is and not what other people tell you, the more successful you will be at business, especially at entrepreneurship. If I've been successful, like I think that's probably why. It's because I'm willing to ask the first question and then just keep asking. And I'm willing to sort of check assumptions and call out the ones that aren't true. Most people aren't. And there's no entrepreneur who's not good at that. Thanks, man. This has been a incredible hour, almost hour and a half, man. So I appreciate it. Of course. Well, Tucker, thanks for joining us. You're welcome back anytime, man. And on a final note, for those of you out there that have that idea in your head, I can speak personally, book in a box is a great way to uh, get it out there. So thanks for creating it, Tucker. I wouldn't be writing a book if it wasn't for that. Of course, man, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. For access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from our show's guests, visit bradleyjohnson.com. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners. It really does help. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.